Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. This episode is from the years 2014 through 16, when the series was called Childhood, History and Critique. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Childhood, History and Critique. I'm Martin Woodside, and this time we have Robin Bernstein, Professor of African and African American Studies and of Studies of Women, Gender, and Sexuality at Harvard University. Her most recent book, which came out from New York University Press in 2011, Racial Innocence, Performing American Childhood from Slavery to Civil Rights, has won broad acclaim, and she is currently writing a book titled White Angels, Black Threats, how stories about childhood and innocence influence what we see, think, and feel about race in America. So, Robin, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to join us today for this conversation about your work. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. You're quite welcome. I guess my first question would be about your book, uh, Racial Innocence, um, and the concept of racial innocence itself, because it's so vast, but also so so clear and simple in so many ways. And I and I and as I was reading through your book, I I found myself wondering how you'd come to the idea if you came to that idea initially and then used it to braid the various ideas and texts inside the book together, or if it happened another way. Um, it did not come at the beginning, not at all. It came really gradually over time. It came uh, from my effort to describe what I was seeing in the archive. Um, where the book started was that I knew I wanted to write about childhood, and I knew I wanted to write about race and the 19th century and theater and performance. Those were the four things that I knew I wanted to write about. And then my question, my research question starting out was really how do these four things fit together? Um, so, no, the idea of innocence actually came midway through the project as I was really trying to understand where my intervention was, as I was really trying to find words to describe the historical phenomena that I was seeing. Um, for a long time, um, I thought that I was writing about childhood, per se, and quite um, quite a ways into the project, I figured out that really what I was writing about was innocence. Um, innocence as carried through children and childhood. Uh, so no, it came quite late. I mean, when I say quite late, I mean um, at least a third into the project. Um, it was not an initial idea at all. So when, when you came upon it then, did the pieces just sort of fit together or did you have to go back and sort of start over again in a lot of ways? Well, I didn't have to go back and start over because all along I was in a dialectical relationship to the evidence. Um, so at every point in the entire process, I mean, from the very beginning until the very end, I was really trying to understand what I saw. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's this constant dialectic where you see something and then it changes what you think about something else. And then you look at the something else and it changes what you think about something else. And you go around and around and around and you and hopefully you get closer and closer to actually understanding something. Um, 
so so that's what happened to me. It wasn't like it wasn't like I, I did a whole lot of work and then I had an idea and I had to go back and redo everything. It was more that I was revising, not even revising. It was more that I was in this dialectical relationship to the evidence at every point along the way. Um, and, you know, once I got the idea of racial innocence, I mean, I continued to um, to to revise it and to um, try to describe what I was seeing. So it was it was um, constantly growing. I think the, the sense of the dialectic is very alive in the book, and especially you mentioned a couple of times now uh, childhood and innocence, and the relationship between them informs a lot of, of what you write about. Mm-hmm. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you started to put those ideas in conversation with each other? Because there's something familiar about um, that approach of using childhood mm-hmm. or children's culture as a focal point for historical analysis, but then there's something very new about how you do it as well. Oh, well, thanks. Um, I mean, there are lots of people who've written about the relationship between childhood and innocence. Um, what was really different about what I was doing was that I was um, writing about the racialization of that relationship. Um, so we have people like James Kincaid, for example, who write brilliantly about childhood and innocence, and I was very um, influenced by James Kincaid, especially early on. Um, and then what I came to understand was that um, James Kincaid was not especially helpful in thinking about race. Um, and what I wanted to do was understand how race was functioning in these very large-scale conversations, both large-scale in the 19th century, but also large-scale in the contemporary moment in scholarship. I wanted to understand how race was, was functioning in these large-scale conversations about um, innocence and childhood. That's interesting. It's kind of amazing to me that, you know, when you read the book, actually, it's kind of amazing that that, that question hadn't really occurred in the way you phrase it before. Mm-hmm. No, it, it's, it's, it's really um, – it was right there in plain view. Um, and, and the minute you say it, it's incredibly obvious. And also I should point out that, um, that African-American activists have understood this for mm, 150 years, which is to say as long as the timeline is that I'm looking at. Um, so African-American activists have absolutely understood for a very long time that, that childhood innocence is political. Um, so what was different about what I was doing is that I was saying it in a scholarly realm, and I was saying it based on archival evidence. Um, I was making a historical argument um, which is, is quite different from what anybody else had done. Um, but, you know, let's, let's be really clear that the idea that childhood innocence is racial and that it is political and that it is high-stakes political, that is not an original idea. That, a lot of people thought that before me. I think maybe one of the challenges, and, and you talk about this in the book, is um, taking that idea and reading it through the source material since there's yeah. so little of it available. So... And you talk about how, uh, you know, you introduce the notion of scriptic, scriptic things, which pro- probably you should uh, um, elaborate on a little bit. But you talk about how for the histories of oppressed people, th- th- you know, this, this concept is even uh, more important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as scars of childhood, we know that, that children's voices are also off- often elusive in the historical record. So once you have these questions, how did you manage to, to sort of read them through – what you're finding in the archives. Right. Well, in some ways, 
evidence is really abundant. Certain kinds of evidence are abundant, and we actually um, underestimate the quantity of evidence there is of children's lives. Um, what's difficult is that the evidence that we have, um, despite its abundance, is really difficult to interpret. So. Um, if we're thinking about children's writing, for example, uh, well, very, very small children, infants, don't write by definition. And then when they learn to write, um, their writing at first is um, very difficult to interpret in a literary way. They write out the ABCs. Um, they copy things. So it's very difficult to understand that as, a, um, as an expression of thought, for example, if somebody is copying the ABCs. I mean, you can, you can find ways to do it, but it's not easy. And most people's training does not help them to do that. Um, I mean, if you've been trained to analyze a sonnet, then you don't necessarily – the skills that it takes to analyze a sonnet are not necessarily transferable if what you want to analyze is, is somebody's copied out alphabet. So, so it's difficult. And then, and then when they get older and they're writing original thoughts, it's still very, it's still highly mediated. So, for example, um, the, the classic example is um, a child writing a letter, and there's an adult standing over the child's um, shoulder saying, you know, tell grandma how much you like the sweater. Um, so it, these things are very difficult to interpret. Um, but in some ways, those difficulties just highlight the difficulties of interpreting any letter. I mean, if I write a letter to somebody, I might fantasize that this is a free expression of my creativity. But in reality, there are all sorts of conventions. There are all sorts of people standing over my shoulder. And maybe they're not literally standing over my shoulder, but they're still telling me, you know, here's how you open a letter, dear so-and-so. Oh, you got to put a date on it. I'm following tons of rules. So... In some ways, the, um, the constrictions upon children's writing and the, the limits of the um, evidence they leave is actually very instructive. Um, it's not a problem. It's actually a useful way to challenge our understanding of evidence more broadly. Um, so, so that's first what I want to say about um, about childhood and um, evidence. Um, and then remind me what, what the larger question was. I think the larger question was about scripted things. Well, yeah, I just uh, I, I thought you could um, maybe elaborate on the idea of scripted things a little bit, but, but go ahead. Yeah, why don't you do that? Sure. Um, so the idea of a scriptive thing is that it's a way to it's a way to produce more analyzable evidence. It's a, it's a way to render more existing evidence analyzable. Um, so the basic idea is that we live in a world where things are giving us instructions all the time. So, for example, a chair says sit. And not only does a chair say sit, a chair also gives you more specific instructions in the stylization of sitting. So a beanbag chair, for example, is going to instruct you in a different style of sitting than um, a straight back chair, just as one example. Now, we have agency, so we don't have to obey these invitations. And it's quite possible to sit in or to attempt to sit in a beanbag chair the way you might sit in a straight back chair or vice versa. You can try that. Um, so you can also decline to sit at all. Um, you can just say, no, I'm not going to accept the invitation. And, of course, we do all of these things all the time. Um, but 
the idea that I put forward in the idea of a scriptive thing is that prior to any response to the invitation, prior to any exercise of agency, any exercise of resistance, any exercise of acquiescence, prior to that, there is the event of the invitation. So my basic idea is that things are issuing invitations constantly and we are actually very, very good at receiving those messages. Um, and this is what acculturation is. So if I went to um, a culture which had a radically different material culture, and I was looking at something, and I wasn't sure whether it was a chair or not. Is that a chair? Is it a table? Is it art? And I had no idea whether I was supposed to sit in it or on it or whether that would be horribly rude. Then I would not be surrounded by scriptive things for me. They would be scripted for the people who normally lived in that culture. And the fact that it's really rare to look at something and not have any idea what to do with it when we are in our own cultural milieu. I mean, how often does it happen when you look at something and you actually have no idea what it is or how you're supposed to interact bodily with it? That happens really rarely. And what that shows us is how scriptive the world around us is. Um, we are... So we are constantly receiving these messages about what to do with stuff. And then what we actually do varies a lot. We do a lot of different things with stuff. We exercise agency. We exercise resistance. We acquiesce. We do all sorts of different things. But before we can do any of those things, we do, in fact, competently receive instructions. And what makes that important is that the issuing of instructions is itself a historical act. It's a historical event that things do. So if, for example, we know that a particular chair existed in a particular child's room in a particular year, we don't know what that child did with it. We don't know whether the child sat in it or not. We don't know whether the child loved the chair, whether the child hated the chair, whether the child never thought about the chair at all. But if we know for a fact simply that that chair was in that child's room, then we know that there was an invitation to sit. And that alone can be interesting. That alone can be useful. And then, of course, we can corroborate it with other evidence. So, for example, we might be able to find corroborating evidence that the child did sit or that the child did not sit. And then that becomes additionally interesting. Um, but even if we don't have any of that corroboration at all, we still have evidence of the invitation, and that invitation itself is a historical event. Yeah, I love this idea when I when I first encountered it, and I, and I wasn't surprised, you know, even now when I look back, I'm not surprised that, that I love the idea. But what surprises me is how convincing I found it when you applied it historically, especially yeah. to children's culture and to things like yeah. play, yeah. like how children played with dolls mm -hmm. in the 19th century. And mm -hmm. I'm still kind of surprised that it works as well as it does for me. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. Um, let me be really clear that I put a lot of work into making it usable. Um, when I was writing the book, what I wanted more than anything in the world was for people to read it and use it. I wanted the ideas to be um, 
to be fungible. I wanted them to be applicable in a wide variety of circumstances. I wanted people to look at what I was doing with, let's say, dolls and say, well, I don't give a darn about dolls, but boy, do I care about pianos. And I wanted them to be able to take what I was saying about dolls and then apply it to, you know, whatever they were interested in, chairs, I don't know, whatever. Um, or in children's culture, video games, you know, anything. Um, so I wanted to produce something that was really widely usable and that, um, that people would be excited about using. And that's happened, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, but, you know, let's, let's, let's uh, be clear that it happened in part because it was my goal. I really wanted it to um, to to be built in. I wanted to build my ideas in such a way that they would be useful and productive for others. And I would like to encourage all scholars to do more of that. I think too many scholars um, build their scholarly worlds, which is what a scholarly book is. It's a little world. It's a little microcosm. And I think too many scholars build these little worlds hermetically in this defensive posture, like, don't rip me off. Don't rip me off. I'm I am doing something unique and brilliant and amazing, and, and it's only right for this one little thing, and, and, um, and, I, and it's, it's the final word on this one tiny little thing. And I didn't want to write that way. I wanted to write something that people would want to put on and try. Um, you know, like try it on like a garment. I wanted somebody to say, you know, hey, I, I want to get, I want to put those shoes on and see where I'm going to walk. Um, so I, I absolutely deliberately wrote it for that purpose. And, and I wish, frankly, I wish more scholars would, would do that and, and give, give that kind of um, tool, give tools to the world in a more self-conscious way. I think that scholars give tools to the world constantly. Um, I just wish that more scholars would do it more consciously. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about um, – well, I'd like to hear about what you're working on now, but I'd also like to hear about your thoughts on racial innocence you know, after the time period the book covers because you strongly suggest, and I've heard you speak um, you know, in other places where you've talked about the idea of racial innocence beyond that, that time period. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how that idea um, exists today or after uh, the civil rights era. Sure. Um, Racial innocence never went away. It's, it's still present. Um, so just to define racial innocence a little bit, um, racial innocence is, it's a, it's a number of things, but it, it's basically the idea, it, racial innocence is the use of childhood innocence in order to make a racial claim. So it is the, it is the act of taking an image of a child and somehow attaching that image of a child, which could be an actual child's body, um, and taking that, that image and attaching it to some form of political argument, uh, which then doesn't look like an argument at all. It looks like a natural fact. So, for example, if I say, we need to censor the Internet, um, that sounds like a political argument. On the other hand, it sounds like a little bit of a, of an out there idea. But if I say we have to protect the children from the from from obscenity on the internet, that sounds really different. And then if I can racialize that and if I can show I mean that's all that one of my arguments is that that's all, always already a racialized idea. But then if I can enact it further and so for example if I can show a little white blonde child um, who um, carries 
the weight of 150 years, 180 years of images of white blonde children associated with innocence, and then I can somehow graft that image onto my political message, then I have gathered power for myself. So, so that's the idea of racial innocence, and we see it constantly. I mean, once you start looking for little white blonde children inside political arguments, you see them everywhere because they're so darn useful. Um, so racial innocence has not gone away. What has happened is that there is a new set of ascendant um, ideologies and that, that, have, that coexists now with racial innocence. And that's what my current book is about. So, um, um, so what my current book is about is it's largely a response to um, the killing of Trayvon Martin and to all of the, um, the deaths of young, unarmed African Americans in this country since um, 2012 which is when Trayvon Martin died. Um, what I'm looking at in the current book, which is called um, White Angels, Black Threats, How Stories About Childhood Innocence Influence What We See, Think, and Feel About Race in America. Um, and what this book basically asks is, how did we get to the point in this culture where a very large number of people is capable of looking at unarmed black children and seeing threats. Um, what I would like to suggest is that that's a form of cultural madness. Um, and we're not even always talking about teenagers. Sometimes we're talking about very young children, um, as young as, as preschool. Um, there has been a rash of literally preschoolers getting arrested, black preschoolers getting arrested for um, age-appropriate behaviors such as throwing tantrums. Um, I would like to suggest that that is insane. That is culturally insane. Um, and so my question is, how did this nation go mad in this particular way? What is the history of this particular form of irrationality? Um, and that's what that's what my book is about. Um, it's a story. It, I originally thought it was going to be a story that picked up where racial innocence left off. But what I'm finding is that actually the roots of this ideology stretch back to the same time period period as racial innocence. So I'm actually working a lot right now in the 1840s, and I'm showing how ideas about um, um, African-American children somehow having an affinity with criminality, I'm showing how that idea actually arose, um, well, I won't say arose, but how it actually became activated um, in the 1840s. Um, so on the one hand, this is really discouraging because it shows us how old and how deep this ideology is. On the other hand, it is possible to see a before. Um, and that's one of the things that I hope my book, Racial Innocence, also showed us, that on the one hand, these ideologies about childhood innocence and race are so deep, they are so naturalized, but in fact, they're not natural, they're historical. There was a time before there seemed to be a common sense that whiteness and childhood and innocence all had something to do with each other. That, in fact, is a historical formation. And when we see a before, it helps us to denaturalize a naturalized presence, and it also helps us to imagine an after. So I'm looking at the roots of this idea that there's a relationship among 
blackness, childhood, and criminality. I'm showing that there's a before that formation of, of ideology and that, therefore, there could be an after, and that's what we need. Okay, great. That's a lot. <laughs> I think I could ask you a lot more about that, but I, we're already far over, and I don't want to take too much of your time. Is there anything else you, you, you want to add in before we uh... – no, just just thank you very much for interviewing me. You've, you've asked me very interesting questions that I've really enjoyed answering, um, and this was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robin. You've been listening to a conversation with Robin Bernstein on Childhood, History and Critique for the Society for the History of Children and Youth, recorded in August 2015.